we started, well, I say we started, we were supposed to have started uh, our summer series, our foundation series, teaching through our statement of faith. We as a church and a denomination of the FCA share a common statement of faith, meaning our convictional understandings of, of who God is, the way that he has worked in this world in Christ, the way that he has spoken in his word, uh, who, who we are in him and our purpose in this world, and, and a little bit more beyond that. But uh, it, it's, it kind of consolidates and articulates our unifying understandings. If we are a people that are to live and serve in unity, that we are to submit to the truth of God, submit to one another for his glory and our good, we need to at least have common understandings. It doesn't mean that we're all going to say things the exact same. We're not even going to see things the exact same in every way. But we are going to at least understand this is our foundational understandings. These are the ways that we're going to teach and that we can at least say we can submit uh, to the Lord, to his word, and to each other with these understandings. Humbly saying, let's walk alongside each other to the truth that, that is the one truth, understanding that our understanding comes out of that. Okay, so all that to say, we started that last week. Uh, the Lord had different plans. Uh, we ended up talking a lot more about what's going on in our world and really spurring each other on to the personal pursuit of who God is. Um, it is a little bit ironic that the one that we would kind of deal with in, in less in-depth ways would be our doctrinal statement of who God is because it's foundational to everything, but yet we're going to be teaching uh, he will be taught through all of our other statements because he is foundational to all of them. And I do believe in the way that he works through the body of Christ. And the encouragement was last week was to you, go dive in, read our statement of faith, read the one that has our scripture references alongside, which there's a link on our website there. You can also see that if you're in the YouVersion app, there's a link there as well. Uh, spend some time prayerfully studying, spend some time in good, honest discussion and discourse with one another, uh, allowing the Lord to reveal himself to you. So we are actually going to move forward uh, this week. We're continuing our next statement in our statement of faith. Our next article would be our, our, our convictions about the Bible, our convictions about Scripture. And we would just say that that is all that is here in this kind of your traditional Holy Bible from Genesis to Revelation. So we would say it is all that is in here and nothing that is not. Okay, so just to define that quickly. Uh, but today we're going to be uh, just today we're going to be looking at that statement and to say for all of these that our understandings are foundational, our foundational understanding rightly who God is, I think it would be good, especially since we kind of went through it in a short form last week, to quickly read our statement about who God is. Again, uh, understanding that these come from uh, convictional scriptural understandings and, uh, and have been affirmed over and over again throughout the entire history of the church. So this is what we would say about God, and we'll move into uh, today's teaching on the Bible. So we, this is what we say. We believe in one God, creator of all things, holy, infinitely perfect, and eternally existing in a loving unity of three equally divine persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Having limitless knowledge and sovereign power, God has graciously purposed from eternity to redeem a people for himself and to make all things new for his own glory. That's who we say God is. And, and so I want us to see and to know that this God that we speak of is a personal God, meaning that he desires relationship with you. He created us for relationship. He created us to partner with him in his work in this world. We see that over and over again in Scripture. He is not an impersonal God. He's not a far-off God. He is not a, a, a just domineering, a ty tyrannical God. He is, a, he is a personal, relational God. He wants us to know him, and he wants 
He wants to know us as he created us. We want to know God. Whether you're sitting here and you're, you're saying, I don't believe that there's a God, or you're sitting here saying, yes, that is truer than anything else I've ever said in my life. Every single person has asked that big question. Why am I here? Does God exist? And just in asking that question, does God exist, speaks to the innate desire that is in you to know him and be known by him. And to desire to know that you were created with speaks to, again, that draw to relationship. So we want to know God. God relates to us and reveals himself to us in various ways. First, through creation, just in our experiential way. Romans tells us that God reveals himself through creation to the extent that no person would have an excuse not to know of his existence. So we see and we, and we understand God in, in ways just through his creation as it reflects his character, it reflects his beauty, it reflects his, his love for us. We experience God, we, we get to know God, he reveals himself through the body of Christ. We have a common fellowship in Christ. We have been reconciled to God and to one another and to all of creation. So in the working of each other, the fact that we were all created in his image and restored to that image in Christ, and us sharing life, sharing truth, serving, celebrating together, crying together, whatever it is, we reveal God to each other as well as help each other to know him better. Also through prayer. Again, prayer is relational. It is, it is the very work of how God transforms our will to his, how he reveals his will to us. So prayer is a relational exchange as well. But I would say this, the primary way that we as the church, we as those who are in Christ, we who have made the, the good confession that we are sinners in need of a Savior and his name is Jesus, we have confessed with our mouth and believed with our hearts, the primary way in which we fellowship with God and the way in which we know God is in the way that Christ has made possible experienced in his holy word and led along by the Holy Spirit. So we need the word to know God. So as we look at this second article in our statement of belief about the Bible, I hope you see that this is a bit of a challenging series a challenging day and a challenging series as we teach through these foundational understandings. And I say that because there's much pushing against the momentum of culture. And you're like, what do you mean? If Jairo Rojas were here, he would say, what does that mean? Because I, anyway, I'm glad, he's, I'm glad he asked me questions like that because they need to be asked. I mean this, that in our, if you look at our culture, I, at least when I look at our culture, I see that overall there is a denial of the need to submit to authority. There is, there is zero affection for that thought. It is, it is looked at as a compromise of devaluing the human. In, in, you know, in a trivial example, and, I, and again, I love creative work, I love collaborative work, so on the one hand, I love this, but I also see an underlying evidence of this just in the common workspace. The space, the, the companies that are saying, we're taking everyone out of offices, putting everyone in a shared space so they can all see each other and have access to each other. There's no, there's no corner view. There's no this. There's no separation. And some of the people in here work in those environments. And again, I get some of the values, but at the same time, I think it speaks to some of that underlying desire that no one is elevated above me. We're all equal. And again, creationally, just in speaking in the matter of creation, that is absolutely true. We are all created 
In God's image, therefore, we all have the, the value of being created in his, in his image as his beloved pinnacle of creation. But yet, just in the, in, in the human relational way, we, it rubs against us to think that we should submit to anybody. And, and although we see it playing out in culture, it's been there. That was the fall of Adam and Eve. They, they thought they knew better than God. They chose to be their own sovereign and did not submit to his way. And it's played out every since. But we see just this momentum of our culture of this anti-submission to authority. We see it in how freely we speak against authorities in our life. How easily, how easily we call them down without any reverence or respect goes on to think about another momentum of our culture is the denial of absolute truth or the universal right and wrong. Again, very unpopular. We each get to, divine, to, divine, to define our truth. That is the popular thought of today. And to say that, no, there is one truth, there is an absolute right and wrong, it is just immediately you face opposition. And so today is difficult. This whole series is going to be difficult because we're constantly going to be butting up against that in ourselves first and foremost, and then in our world. So when we speak of Scripture, we're wading into the waters of these themes, confronting these themes. When you think about the claims of Scripture, what are they claiming? They're claiming to be an authority in our lives as well as our foundation of truth and our measure of right and wrong. So one of the difficulties of today, and the, 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 the day that many, the, the dynamic that many uh, in, the in, the, in the intellectual pursuit call foul on is that we will be going to Scripture in order for us to understand how Scripture can be valid and true. The argument that Scripture is true because Scripture says it's true. We're like, that's not, that's, you're, you're not allowed to do that. But let's just, let's just break it down. If, if in presenting arguments in a debate, you want the most authoritative source possible and in any debate team is going to seek like the holy grail of an authoritative source so that they can have that trump card when anyone comes against them, if we're looking at the will and the way and the character of God, if we believe, as we will see in a minute, that Scripture is the Word of God and His authoritative truth, what other source of authority do we have to go to than itself? I love how R.C. Sproul a guy much smarter than I kind of summarizes this. He says, an evangelical approach to the knowledge of truth will need to incorporate our biblical convictions regarding God, mankind, sin, salvation, and more. Some might object that beginning with our beliefs injects subjectivity into the question since our theory of truth presupposes certain truths. Our answer is that as Christians, we cannot avoid the realities of who and what we are through our relationship to Jesus Christ. So if you are a Christian, I invite you to that posture, to that place. If you are not, I invite you there as well. And I ask you for grace that to see that we are not perfect people. I am not a perfect pastor or a perfect person, which there really is no difference. Um, and that to, so to say, I invite you there, I say, hey, with grace, let us come to the person of God. Let us ask God to reveal himself to us, his goodness to us. Let's, let's come with just open hearts, open hands, open minds, and let the Lord work. You're like, I don't know what that means. That's okay. Let's just say, well, even if we don't get it, we'll let the Lord work. He will. He's, he created us, so we don't have to give him permission. Um, so, with all that being said, I want us to pray before we go any further. I want us to pray just for humble hearts, for, for pliable minds, for, 
for uh, just, uh, again, for us to kind of sit with the posture that, that God desires that we could hear from him now, that we would know God, that we would know his intent for his word, his intent for who we are in respect to his given word. Let's pray. So God, we love you. We thank you for today. We thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you that you are a relational God who speaks. And Lord, that in your word, you, you revealed your character. You have, you have enacted, Lord, your benevolent desire for your people, for your creation, that we could know hope, we could be restored. Lord, that it's not just a checklist. It's not just a way of life. It is a way of knowing you and being known. So God, now as we come to this time of, of teaching and pursuit, Lord, I pray that you would be glorified. I pray that your church would be, would be emboldened, Lord, that we would all be transformed by the work of Christ. And Lord, that we would see your word to be what it is as you've given it. In Jesus' name, amen. So let's quickly, let's read our statement about what our convictions of the word, of the Bible. Here we go. And I think it'll be on our screens for us. It says, we believe that God, do you have that? Sweet, there it is. We believe that God has spoken in the Scripture, both Old and New Testaments, through the word of human authors as the verbally inspired word of God. The Bible is without error in the original writings, the complete revelation of His will for our salvation, and the ultimate authority by which every realm of human knowledge and endeavor should be judged. Therefore, it is to be believed in all that it teaches, obeyed in all that it requires, and trusted in all that it promises." So we are not going to work through this article, breaking down each statement, um, mainly because of time. This, these subjects, these, these things are typically taught more in classroom, expanded lecture settings, systematic theology, and we are seeking to do this in 35 to 45 minutes, depending on the Sunday. Um, and so just for that reason, also I think if we focus on a few of the foundational claims, uh, we will see the other ones played out and supported and made true. Um, so we're going to, to do that, we're going to look at one of the, in my opinion, one of the most important passages in Scripture concerning the Word itself that teaches us the foundational claims of our statement that will support the other ones that we don't delve into today. Um, so you can uh, go ahead and turn to 2 Timothy chapter 3. Um, we'll have it on the screens as well. If you need a Bible or you don't have an app, look underneath you, around a chair near you, you'll see a Bible there. Uh, you can use that. There's a table of contents in the front. If you're, it's a pretty small book. It's near the back. Um, and if you don't have a Bible, we would love for you to take that with you. That'll be our gift to you. Um, out of our looking at 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, what we're going to see today is the source of Scripture as well as the value of Scripture and then the purpose of Scripture. So let's read it in full and then we'll work through it. So 2 Timothy 3, 16-17, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may, com be, the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So we start with the source of Scripture. We see here in just the beginning of verse 16, it says, All Scripture is breathed out by God. Let's just camp out on those words for a minute. Breathed out by God. In Greek, it's the word theonoustos. And it's, it's just the idea that it is, it is a breath. It is, it is given from God. And, and, and we see theo, that it is from God. We see noustos, which is uh, of the spirit. 
And so it is given by God of the Spirit. It is a work of Him. And when we think about breath breathed out by God, I want us to hear the life that is in us. Because I think our first problem when we think about Scripture is that we make it this impersonal, dry, academic, uh, you know, irrelevant book. When we see the breath of God, we have to think immediately of the breath of life that God breathed into man when he created us. The very breath that brought life to Adam, that filled his lungs, gave him, gave him thought, gave him affection for God, is the same breath that is in these words. The same breath in what he has given in Scripture. So it's breathed by God also to think about it in a, more, in a more adventurous and whimsical way. It is the story. We love stories. This is the story of God's redemptive work in this world. There is, there is a tyrant at work to destroy a people, and that is Satan. He is out to, to still kill and destroy. And this, we are a people in need, and we have a hero. His name is God who came in the form of, of Jesus, our Savior, his Son, so this is the story. When we think about all of Scripture, it is the story of a hero to, coming to, redeemed a pe- to redeem a people that are hurting, a people that are in captivity, a people that are lost, and those people are us. He acted on our behalf. We see, we see all the great themes of story. We see, we see love. We see sacrifice. We see selflessness. We see, we see just as well fun. We see celebration. We see it all. We see family life. So we see this is the story of God. And so before we go any further, I want us just to connect to that. This is the story of God's loving, redemptive work for his creation that he loves. For you and me. So when we think about scripture, we are not trying to to do anything else other than find our story and his story. So when we come to Scripture, that's the posture in which we can come. And so we see that God is a living, personal person, as we already talked about. And it sounds redundant to say personal person, but I didn't like saying personal being because that sounds impersonal. So he's a personal person. Like he is. He is. He has he person that we can relate to. He's made that possible. So the very scripture, this very word, God is a word who work, God is a God who works through his word in creation. He created through his word. And so we see that in this is the very life that all was created with. So if we want any life at all, I pray that right now we just have an awakening value, an awakening desire for the fellowship that comes in the Word. So the God who loves and the God who saves breathed out life and breathed out this Word for you and me and for His glory. And because the Word was breathed out by God, all that we know and believe about God must be true of the Scriptures as well, which is why we say our understanding of God is foundational for everything else. So just in quick review, some of those important characteristics of God that we want to make sure to look at Scripture in the same way is this. God is divine and supernatural, and he works in divine and supernatural ways. God is all-knowing. He has all knowledge. God is love. God is truth. He is, he is truth, so that means he also can't. He does not have the capability to lie. It's not just that he doesn't lie. He is truth, so therefore lying is impossible for him, and God is unchanging. So if those are true for God... They are true for his word. So as we come to think about scripture, all scripture is God breathing. We think about our claims of our statement. We think about words like inspired, inerrant, and infallible. You're like, what are those words? Quick definitions. Inspired meaning what we already said. They come from God. And we'll talk about that more in a minute. Inerrant means that in all that they claim, whether it be science or history or anything else, there is no error. 
infallible means because they are truth, just as God is truth and God cannot lie, they are, imp- they are incapable of being false. The word of God. So when we think about these central claims in our statement, they, they, sent, they, they come around the fact that they come from God and because they come from God, they are without error and they are impossible of not being true. They are full of truthiness. So to think about this, just quickly, as we think about these foundational understandings, let's think about them practically and kind of unpack them practically. Uh, we think first that these are divine writings. The Bible is divine writings, not meaning like the way that the Ten, the Ten Commandments were divine, where, where Moses went up on the hill and, and God actually wrote in the stone himself. Not like that. That's divine as well. But these are divine in a different way. These are divine in the fact that God, when we think about Theonustus, by the Spirit, man wrote these. They were written by human hands, but they have divine authority. So to think about written by human hands, when we think about, when you, if you spend any time in Scripture, you start to see differences in the way they were written. And not only in, you see it in style, you see it in subject matter, and it's because they were written by human hands, meaning that they were written by, 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 personal, by that person's personality, through that person's uh, skill, you know, area of expertise, their competencies, their affinities, their historical context of the people that they lived with and the culture that they lived in. All of those things had an impact of how they wrote out, but what is written, the intent that is written is from God. The truth that it, the truthiness of it comes from God. And so we think about, and, and, and maybe this is the head, but we'll just say it now. We think about why we talk about the importance of contextual understanding and studying Scripture, with the importance of understanding as much as, as, much as we can uh, the history, the, the context, the culture, because understanding the original intent of the author for the original audience keeps the word from being a, an irrelevant uh, behavioral checklist because when we when we understand scripture to be foundational principles that are applicable to all culture all of a sudden we don't need you know scripture to speak about boundaries of how much time we spend on facebook because we understand or you know other things like that they didn't face back then but they but you see that in all scripture we see the intent is laid out so when we understand the intent of the original author to the original audience we are able to bring every bit of our need to scripture so we see the importance of written by human hands, but a divine authority. We see this spoken to in 2 Peter 1, 20 and 21. It says, knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So again, I know there's a lot more to unpack in that, but our foundational statement, thinking about the inspired word of God and how we're able to make the claim that it's inerrant and infallible, is that it would be a divine writing authored by God through through human hands and human personality and human life. So we see that they're divine writings, and then we also we can look at just for confidence, personal confidence, uh, just looking at the historical strength of Scripture. We can have confidence. We said that we believe that it is the word of God inspired both in Old and New Testament. How can we have confidence in the Old Testament other than just by faith? Right? Because faith is enough. Again, if we believe, if we build the foundation of faith of understanding who God who is, who he says he is, that he's spoken to man through a scripture, scripture says that it is the word of God, we could stop there. But let's just take a little farther out of kindness for each other. What are some of the ways we can have confidence in the Old Testament? I came across a good summary that I figured... 
I could try to either bullet point and say it myself, or I could just read it, and I'm just going to read it because I couldn't say it any better. So here comes a summary of some of the ways in which we can trust the Old Testament. The Old Testament has even fewer questions concerning what was written down. This certainly is due in great measure because of the care with which Masoretic scribes copied the manuscripts. So those are the people that made copies so that everyone could have it. Generally, the Old Testament scriptures were written on vellum, which is an animal skin that assured durability for the scriptural writings. On occasion, the Old Testament scriptures appear to have been transcribed onto copper scrolls. The copyist would pronounce the word he was about to copy. This is the process. Then he would say aloud each letter as he copied that letter. At the end of each line, he would count the number of letters to ensure that no extraneous letters were inadvertently in, in, introduced, which would, of course, ruin the copy and possibly change the meaning of Scripture. If a count revealed the inclusion of an extra letter or the omission of, an, of a letter, the entire copy was destroyed. Consequently, even the Isaiah scroll, an ancient copper scroll containing the prophecy of Isaiah, agrees with copies made by the Masoretes as late as the New Testament era. So again, copies of the Old Testament scriptures were circulated widely so that ample access was provided for any seeking to know the Word of God. And we think, even as we read the New Testament referencing the Old Testament, they were constantly referencing these same scripture, the law and the prophets, the Psalms and the Proverbs included with those. So whenever you see that in the New Testament, and it was tried, it was proven, it was the same, consistent over and over again. So we see that just in that anecdotal evidence, we can see our, our, our just personal confidence that the actual word that was given by God is the one that we have in the Old Testament. That is the point. So then we think about the New Testament. Well, okay, well, you see that in the New, old, the New Testament, they refer to the Old Testament, we can have confidence in it. What about the New Testament? Well, similarly, I mean, the New Testament is the most historically supported document of any ancient document that we have. We have over 5,000 New Testament manuscripts and scripture portions in addition to multiple ancient translations of the New Testament. Some of these manuscripts were being circulated among the churches even in the days of the apostles, some of the ones that we have. The books of the New Testament were immediately circulated following their writing. And I see, we see this in Colossians 4.16. When this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans and see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. Why does that matter? Like, why is that something that should bring confidence? These writings by the apostles, they were being circulated in a time that people were still alive that would have experienced some of the claims of these writings. If there was falsity in them, if there was fiction contrived, they would not have continued as authoritative documents in the church. They would not have continued to break outside of the, the walls of the church to influence life and culture in the world. Someone would have called foul, someone would have called false, someone would have derailed the whole system. There were people that were alive during the claims of these scriptures that were there as they were being circulated. So we can have confidence in the proven word, in the testified word. Go read Luke. It's a fun one. Luke went around interviewing people. He was there with Jesus, but he also went around interviewing others to get firsthand accounts. 
We like that as, as empiricists and intellectuals. You're like, well, how can I know? Well, you can know because they know. It's been tried. It's been proven. If you study a critical copy of the Koine Greek New Testament, you'll notice that part of each page provides an apparatus so that the reader can be made aware of variant readings on biblical manuscripts, saying that, hey, in this one it had this little difference, and this one it had this little difference, so that you can go and make critical comparison. The student will discover that, for the most part, the discrepancies amount to questions of the spelling of proper nouns, whether a definite article should be used or not, word order, or other such minor issues. So except for a handful of questionable verses, the text of the New Testament is 99.9% settled. And even in that 0.1%, you're like, but what about 0.1%? Does that make it all false? Well, even in that 0.1%, we still see a consistency to the entire narrative, a consistency to the entire story and intent of Scripture. So we see once again that it doesn't vary. And the differences are always inconsequential as far as to impact the meaning like you just heard. So again, just anecdotally, we can have confidence uh, upon our faith understanding. Along with these historical uh, understandings, we can also look at internal consistency. Again, think about, just, just marvel at this for a second. And maybe I'm geeking out, and I hope I'm not leaving everyone behind in this. And um, well, well, Anyway, um, but think about this. Scripture was written by over 40 authors over the span of 2,000 years. And yet, from the beginning of Genesis to the end of Revelation, there is agreement in the overall message. It is all preaching the same, pointing to the same message. What is that? The consistent message of the word is that man was ruined by the fall and is thus incapable of pleasing God through his own strength. It continues that God alone provides the way for man to approach him. I love how Spurgeon summarizes this. He says, the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And then we see the final, the final thread of that, of that continual narrative is that man glorifies God through coming to him, through accepting the sacrifice of his own son, Jesus. So just the internal consistency from beginning to end, everything revolves around the telling of that story, the proclamation of that work, of God's intent. And lastly, just to help us think about Scripture well, we, we kind of come to this debate, this, this sticky point of revelation versus illumination. And that could mean a few things, so let me just talk about it real quick. We think about, and this brings us into the question of the work of, of the Word and the work of the Holy Spirit and how we experience those, those things. And, and we think about the Holy Spirit, and the question can come up, does the Holy Spirit, does He speak in ways that reveals new truth and revelation today? And we say no. There is no new revelation of God. You're like, oh, wait. Like people about to walk out. Um, God spoke his revelatory work through the prophets and the apostles. It's recorded in our word. But his revelation is complete. The canon is closed. And just looking just in our letter here of 2 Timothy, if we back up a couple of verses, we see in verse 14, but as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from, you, from, from whom you have learned it. So just in this little nuanced statement, but it's very important, in what you have learned, continue in what you have learned. It's saying, he didn't say, continue to seek out God's new truth for you. He says, you, it has all been given. Continue in what you have learned. It has been given. 
So what is the role of the Holy Spirit then? The, whole, the role of the Holy Spirit is to illuminate the given complete revelation by God and Scripture. The Holy Spirit in us will call us to truth, will bring light to the revelation that God has given in His Word. And he helps us to understand and He helps us to live a life of uh, surrender to that truth. 1 Corinthians 2.10 says this, These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. So because the Holy Spirit is in us, we can know the mind of God. And if we believe that the Word is God's spoken Word, which comes from His mind, which is an expression of who He is and His character, then again, we understand the role of the Holy Spirit. It helps us to know God and to know His will and His desire. And just play out the consequences if this were not so, if we, had, if we had just new revelation coming all the time, where would our authority be? How could there be an authoritative truth? So God has worked in a, he has worked in a complete way, and we can believe that. He has given his work in a complete way. He's given his truth in a complete way. So we have the source of Scripture. What is the value of Scripture? We're going to move to these last two pretty quickly. Because that is foundational to everything. Because again, if we understand the source, we can, we can have confidence because it is inspired, given by God, as well as an error and infallible. Um, so 2 Timothy, the rest of 3.16 says, All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. And if you believe that scripture is this claim of God that is his word from him, to us, his completed revelatory work, then it's not a stretch to think that the, the value of the word is that it's profitable for, for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. And I love how another pastor, Warren Wiersbe, summarized this. He says, the Bible is profitable for teaching, which is what is right, for reproof, which is what is not right, for correction, how to get right, and for training in righteousness, how to stay right. Christians who study the Bible and apply what they learn will grow in holiness. So we come back to the question of authority again. And again, it's why it's important to understand the source of Scripture. Because if we're going to live out this way, if we're going to submit our will and way to the truth of God given in His Word, then we have to understand the authority of it. So the only way that Scripture would work in this way in our lives is only to see it as an authoritative divine work from Him. So how are we to understand Scripture from our own experience? Is that what proves Scripture to be true and relevant? I say no. The truth is we are to understand our experiences from the perspective of Scripture. If Scripture changed as culture changed, we could never have any confidence in it at all. Here's how I would say it personally. I don't want my confidence in Scripture to come out of Scripture being proved out by my circumstances in life. And it is only what proves out whether it's in my emotions or what I, what, what, what I get for what I give that then I say Scripture is real. Instead, my prayer is this, is that I have so much confidence in the Word of our God that I cannot help but bring my every circumstance of life to it. We have a couple of core values that are rooted in this. One is that we live in full submission to, to uh, biblical truth, and the other is that we live in biblical freedom. And again, if... It's always this if, this qualitative, do we believe the word to be the word of God, his, his truth, of his, his intent for us, as well as his story of our redemption? Well, then if we do, then we find the joy of submitting to biblical authority. Again, thinking about living in a world counter to culture. 
And you think about how this leads to freedom. First off, it's just the personal freedom, the personal experience of once being bound and now being free, but also the freedom to be a part of God's design for your world. Again, we live in a culture against these absolute claims, against another sovereign, against another savior, besides our own efforts, our own works, or whatever else. And yet to say we submit to full biblical authority gives us the freedom to proclaim with love the uncompromising, unchanging truth of God. So when it comes to walking alongside people humbly and respectfully and, and, and faithfully in this world in hopes of them coming to see the truth of Jesus, in due time we can with confidence and love say, hey, listen, I love you. Let me show you how that way of your life is leading to destruction. We don't lead out with that, guys, okay? Like, that's, not, that's not your intro, okay? But like, again, faithfully, intentionally, as the Lord leads you there, we, we can say those things with love because we understand that God's truth is a reflection of his character. His word, his given word, is a reflection of his character, that he is good, he is loving. And so his word fulfills the, the, the absolute purpose for your and I's life, that we glorify God. And it also is for the good of his creation, which includes yourself and those that you're seeking to reach, to love, to serve. So in submitting to biblical freedom, all of a sudden it's not your whim that you're trying to get someone to conform to. It's not your emotional like rabbit's foot that you cling to that makes you feel good. It's not your little, your little shot of adrenaline, of hope adrenaline for the day. Like it is the transforming relational truth of God that you are inviting people into, that you're offering to people. So we see the importance of a f submitting fully to the authority of the word and how that leads to freedom experientially as well as missionally. We can go where the church is sadly and sinfully traditionally shied away from. We can take the light to the darkness. We can love those who the church has ostracized historically, expressing the heart of Christ, living obedient to the word. So, <clears throat> the, if we see the source of Scripture, which leads us to a value of Scripture, we now see it culminating in the purpose of Scripture. We see this in 317. It says that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. That's the purpose. That we would be complete. Again, not that we would just be right. That's how we look at the word often. How to make us right. How to live right. It makes us complete. Because we know God through it. Because we live out our purpose in him. And it equips us for that. For every good work. And we know that every good work is the works that, again, facilitate God's redemptive work in this world. This takes me to the Great Commission. Jesus' parting words to the church. Matthew 28, 18 and 20. It says, And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them, in the name, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. It is in teaching the word of God that we will equip each other to fulfill other purposes, our purpose in this life. It is in teaching the word of God that we will call others in to a saving faith, to a restoration of hope. Because again, it is God that draws man to himself. We don't, we, we don't want to sit up here and make it slick. We don't want to make it attractive. We don't need to. We, don't want to. we would only be a distraction. So in teaching the full truth of God is given as the gift that it is, man will be, man, all of mankind will be called to the redeeming work in Christ. 
That's our, that's our purpose. So here, thinking of all this, of our, of our source of the word, our, the value of the word, and our purpose of the word, this is, this is my prayer for our church, and really for the church, that we would be a people bound together in the fellowship of the gospel given in Christ, understanding that we have been invited in Christ to know God and have fellowship with him in various ways and foundationally in his word, the scriptures. And because scripture is the breathed out word of God, we can know him. And knowing God, we love him and know that we are loved by him. And therefore, we are compelled to live out the life that honors him. The value of the scripture is that it shows us how to do that. So here, just catch it, okay? Scripture introduces us to God, which then awakens a love relationship, a, a loving affection for God, which then we desire, just as we do in any relationship, to honor the other. Then scripture shows us how to do that. We are not only compelled to love him with an honoring life, but are also compelled to live out the purpose of God, knowing that the purpose of Scripture is to make us aware of our salvation in Christ and our purpose of his kingdom work in this world. And with all of that, that we, a people of common fellowship in Christ, that we would share in continual celebration of the word, that we would share a continual discourse, that it's not in this setting, and then maybe if you're a part of a transformation group, that, that, that we speak of the Word of God, but that it's just such a part of us that as we hang out, I, I, I love, I, just this past seven days, I've had great experiences of gospel fellowship where we've been hanging out, and, and in a very natural way, we, 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 we meandered in and out of absurdities to the deep truths of God, to wrestling with our place in this world, to, to then laughing, you know, telling stories of our childhood, and then to our purpose as a church, and just over and over again this past week, God has given me that kindness, and that's what we want to see because it is a part of who we are. He has created us the way we are, that we are continually celebrating his word, having that, 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 that common fellowship of his word, and that we have personal study that leads to personal transformation, to communal transformation, to world transformation in Christ. That's our invitation. That's our opportunity. That is, that is why we say it's important for us to understand what we know of the word and that it comes from the claims of, of, of Scripture itself. So that's what we have today. That's what we're moving forward with. Again, I know there's so much more to dig into with Scripture. I invite you to please continue in personal study, continue in discussing with one another. I'm always here for more questions. This is a safe place to ask questions. You can't know what you don't know, and that is okay. You only know by asking questions. So there is no stupid question. Don't, so please let this be a safe place to, to seek. Let this be a safe place to doubt. Let this be a safe place to struggle. Let this be a safe place to learn. We are all pilgrims along the way. We're, that's the beauty of sanctification. It is, a, it is a process of being made more like Christ through our entire life into the day where we are unified with him once again. So let me pray for us just to kind of close this time. Travis is going to come up and lead us in communion. God, we love you and we thank you for today. Lord, I thank you for your word. Lord, that it is perfect, that it does not return void uh, when it is spoken. Lord, I, I, I know that my words fall short often, uh, but I know that yours never does, and I know that you're working through the Holy, your Holy Spirit in us. And so I just pray for your work to be complete this morning. God, that as we grow in our understanding of who you are, we would also grow in a great value of the word. Lord, and it wouldn't just be an academic document we go to to find ways to, to make sure we can, we, we just act. 
but it would be, again, an invitation to relationship and a continuation of that relationship and an understanding of how we are to live in this world. I pray that we would be zealous and affectionate for fellowship in your word. I pray that it would permeate every bit of who we are and who we are as a community. I pray that it would permeate to the point that it breaks out of our, of our enclosed conversations and breaks out into the world that is seeking and hurting and in the dark and in need of the light of Christ. Let us not just, again, I just pray against kind of the, the consumeristic mentality or our, our own tendency to be our own sovereign and not submit to you the authority of, of each other as you've given us. But I pray just that we would be a people that live on the mission of Christ, Lord, in fellowship with you and with one another. Lord, so we give you this time, Lord, we give you our lives, Lord, as we think on the life that you gave in Christ, the body that was broken, the blood that was shed, let us remember well, find hope and purpose. In Jesus' name.